looked at this empirically And I think you're the one for me Plus or minus three Hey peeps, this is Pambe here. I wanted to start this episode with a few thank yous. The first being to the artists you are listening to in the background right now, which is Helen Arnie, equally talented sister of Kat, the star of this episode. We'll have links to her work in the notes for this episode, but we wanted to give her a huge thanks for making her music freely available through Creative Commons. Also grateful to the staff at the Bricks in Ebor for the service, excellent beer and the tacos. Finally, thanks to our friend Jill, who came to hang out with us for the evening. Now let's get on with meeting our guest. Hello dear Two Scientists listeners, this is season six of our podcast and we are very happy to have today uh, Dr. Catherine, or rather Kat Arnie. How are you Kat? I'm good, only my mother calls me Catherine. Really? Definitely a cat, yes. Okay, all right, we'll stick to Kat. So, you are a lady with an awful lot of hats. In fact, I had to write this ridiculous list today. You have a PhD in genetics. You are a writer, a podcaster, a broadcaster, a communicator, and you are very recently a a science trainer, right? So you offer advice to people about going into science communication. Yeah, uh, science storyteller. It sort of encompasses all of those things. I'm trying to tell stories about science and then help people, whether they're in comms or in science, find those stories and tell them. I like stories, basically. Very cool. Um, So, tell us more about how you actually got into science and why specifically genetics? So, I'm one of those people who was just the super nerdy kid, so I really liked science. At school, my parents luckily bought me all those kind of, you know, the science experiment books, let's do science experiments, let's make this happen. I was bought a chemistry set and I don't remember everything I did with it, but I definitely remember making indicators out of cabbage, red cabbage. <laughs> um, you know, high five to everyone that's done that. Uh, and used up all the copper sulfate because it was blue. And then I think I probably lost interest because all the other chemicals were just like white and uh-huh. a bit, bit dull. Um, and I was the kind of kid, you know, I kept snails in my bedroom. I was always trying to invent things. And I always thought I was going to be a, a mad professor. That was my preferred job mm-hmm. option. And so obviously I went through school and in the UK you tend to really specialise quite early. We don't have this very broad approach to education. So I did science, um, quite a lot of science A-levels, went to university and did a degree called natural sciences, which was a bit kind of science pick and mix. Mm -hmm. So I did bits of chemistry, bits of physiology, bits of pharmacology, lots of cell biology. I actually don't think I did any genetics don't (laughs) tell anyone Uh, but I was always just super interested in science and you know you talk to people and they go well if you're really interested in science then you go and do a PhD and then you go into a career in science and then ultimately you get to become the professor and that's Mm -hmm. how it that's how it works right you know you just you just hang around in a lab long enough and you become a professor Uh yeah so uh, I sort of discovered that that wasn't true around uh around about my sort of my first postdoc (laughs) (laughs) and uh, i probably shouldn't have done the second postdoc that was a mistake but so i kind of i'd got to like my like mid mid late 20s all my life i've been like you're a scientist you love science i love science i love the thinking about experiments i love learning about what people have found and all the cool stuff and then realized that i was no good at lab science I'm really (laughs) clumsy and I'm really clumsy and I've got a really short attention span and if you're doing things like working with knockout mice that take you know three years to make a knockout or I I was also working with really tiny pre-implantation embryos Mm -hmm. and if you're really clumsy that's you know just point and oh that that was it It just flown this tiny embryo across the room or something um so I (laughs) got a vivid image yeah so I wasn't really (laughs) cut out for lab science and the short attention span is definitely a thing. You know, I was just, every time a, a paper would come out, I'd be like, oh, this is so interesting. And now I have to order the reagents and do this experiment. Oh, I'm bored with that now. You know, oh, it didn't work because I'm clumsy. Um, so I kind of came to a bit of a, a halt in my life. I was just got, I got really depressed and didn't know what I was doing because I'd been told all my life, you're a scientist, you're going to become a professor. And just felt like a massive failure. 
And it took me quite a while to realise that there were other things that I'd always liked doing. You know, I loved... um, I love performing. I'm a massive show-off. I don't know if you can tell. Uh, I loved writing. I always used to write, you know, huge stories in English. I write, even in my science essays would just go on for pages and pages, you know, adding colour and explanation and history. Uh, and realised that there was a career there for people who could find science stories, explain them in English, kind of translate them, science into English, and write them and tell them. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky enough to get a job, full-time job doing that for Cancer Research UK, the UK cancer charity. And that was, oh, I got that in 2004. So I did that for 12 years and then wow. finally launched myself as a freelance writer when my first book came out. So that's like my, my potted life. That's very cool. And it's always awesome to hear stories about, you know, with the happy ending saying, yes, science didn't quite work out for me, but... I'm happy doing what I'm doing now. I mean, ironically, I think I'd probably read more science papers and talk to more <laughs> scientists and think more about science and the connections and the experiments than I probably ever did when I was a scientist because I was so lost in that nitty-gritty of, like, pipetting and yes. checking the mice and doing the, you know, genotyping and that kind yes. of stuff. Because an awful lot of it is just boring cooking, essentially. Boring as shit. I mean, it really <laughs> is. Uh, I Also, I was doing my PhD in the days before... You could just send all your bacterial oh, colonies yes. off for sequence. You know, 96 mini prep days. I was doing those and sequence, sending stuff off for sequencing, like 400 base pairs at a time. It's, <laughs> it's absolutely excruciating. Yes. And then you, but then you talk to the old guys. They're like, oh, back. I had to make my own tack polymerase. Yeah, yes. now you're born. Yes, so. <laughs> quite. This is, obviously, this, this is always going to happen from one generation to the next. Um, but we, before we move on completely from your research, so the kind of stuff you did was um, was actually pretty cool because it's not looking just at DNA specifically. It's looking at an aspect of it called epigenetics. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so I find this fascinating because I was working in epigenetics in the 90s before it was cool. Mm-hmm. So I kind of feel like I was into this band before <laughs> everyone else was into the epigenetics band. And now like all you hear is about epigenetics. Mm-hmm. And I really kind of like epigenetics as kind of earlier material, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I, feel, I feel they've kind of really sold out now and everyone just wants the T-shirt. It's like, you know. Um, so epigenetics is the concept that, well, you can really kind of unpack this a lot. And uh, epigenetics is a word that means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. So in the purest sense of the word, it just means how genes are controlled that's not really to do with the DNA sequence itself. Mm -hmm. So genes get turned on, genes get turned off, organisms respond to their environment. You don't change your DNA when it gets hotter. Mm -hmm. You change the expression of your genes, you switch certain things on and off, that's all done epigenetically. You don't start mutating your DNA every time it's hot and remutate it when it's cold. So those are epigenetic mechanisms. And you know, there's been a lot of research into that and it all revolves around how DNA, that kind of the, the code, if you like, that string of DNA is packed up and coiled up and all the little tags and messages that are put on that that tell your cells what to do with this piece of DNA. Then people get really excited about it and start thinking about, well, this is the way that the environment talks to the genome. So can you, can you pimp your genome by eating... Can you pimp your genome by eating goji berries and that will affect your epigenetics? <laughs> uh, and people get very excited and you get people like Deepak Chopra who say, well, you can like think your epigenetics happy or something like that. Uh, and the problem with that is we don't really know how much of a causal connection there is between changing an epigenetic kind of tag, like this kind of post-it note that's stuck on a gene and actually changing the activity of the gene. Mm-hmm. It's certainly a readout yep. of whether a gene's active or not, but we don't know whether manipulating these tags really changes gene activity. So, you know, that's kind of an interesting one. And, and there's some weird experiments in yeast that suggest yes, no. Um, and, and also the key thing is epigenetic changes need to be heritable. So when a cell divides, a cell has to remember what it was mm-hmm. doing. And this is also how we have so many different cells in the body from the same genome you know your liver cells have the same genes as your skin cells as your brain cells as your toenails 
but they all need to remember which genes they use to make them a skin or a brain or a toenail and not start doing something else Mm because that's kind of bad um and then the thing that gets really weird and then gets people really super excited is this idea of epigenetic inheritance Mm -hmm. so this is whether the things that happen to you the changes that happen in your environment somehow get uh remembered in your genome in the packaging of the genome and then passed on to the next generation and people get really super excited about this um we know that it happens in plants uh we know that it happens in worms maybe happens in fruit flies we don't know for sure that it really happens in humans there's some like intriguing data uh in different things mainly around nutrition whether like nutrition Mm -hmm. and and there's good evidence you know that just carrying a baby in the womb like the mother's environment and information passes on to that child but you know the jury's out on that but everyone gets terribly excited about it (laughs) i'm spanging on i could talk about no 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 you know you you got me started now (laughs) i can do the whole book from memory (laughs) i'm not sure we have that kind of time this is this is one of those things that always comes up when you're reading articles about uh, kind of genetic similarity between species. So it says that 99.9% of our genome is the same as the person sitting next to us. And then you start to go down the scale a little bit, and I looked up a few. 96% of our genome is the same as chimps. 60% of our genome is the same as bananas. Like, yeah. what does that mean? Yeah, my, my sister Helen is a science comedian and she sort of made this joke. It's like, you know, if we're 67% the same as a banana and I inherit 50% of my DNA from my mum, does that mean my mum is a banana? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think it, it's interesting because you can look at like, what do we inherit? What's the same? Mm-hmm. Um, and that does differ between species, but there's a lot that is the same just to make a cell. There's a lot of things that cells just need to be cells you Mm -hmm. need to make energy you need to like put the garbage out you need to transport things around you need to unpack and repack your dna and read your genes so all of that stuff you know it's all cells cells all came from the same original life you know the the last universal common ancestor luca we all came from the same cell originally so it's not surprising that we would have many of the same genes and where i get really interested in this is that in terms of well so if you have to remember that out of your whole genome, most of it is not genes. Yes. Like less than 2% of your genome is actual, you know, honest to goodness, this does a thing, genes. Um, and the rest is like some of it's junk, some of it really is junk. Um, and some of it is the control elements, the regulatory elements that turn genes on and off and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's what I'm really interested in. And that's kind of what I've always been really into. Because if you look at like your genes, we're basically the same as any mammal your genes are the same as a mouse as a cow as a chimp you know and we've all got the same basic structure yeah you've got the, like the fur and skin on the outside mm-hmm. liver organs in the middle four limbs that kind of business we are yeah we're just kind of big less furry mice without a tail and smaller ears <laughs> if you want to get all comparative <laughs> about it um so the genes are the same but where you can kind of really start to play is with these control switches. And that absolutely fascinated me when I started to really think about this. And uh, there's a guy in Cambridge called Duncan Odom, and he's compared 20 different species of mammals. And yeah, all, all the genes are the same. We mm-hmm. make the same proteins. But the control switches are evolution's playgrounds. You know, you fiddle with a bit and you get bigger ears, you get covered with fur, you grow a tail. You know, humans have a tail, we just don't express it um on the outside <laughs> yeah you can we have internal tails yeah we, you've got like a, you've got a tiny stubby bit at the end. yeah i've, I've fallen on mine it's very <laughs> you can fall on your tailbone and it is very painful uh whales you know they've still got the same bits but their limbs have become flippers um so you know and this is all just changes in the control regions so my first book was called Herding Hemingway's Cats, which is about the Hemingway cats. It's very nice to be here in Florida. I've never actually been. Um, because Hemingway had these six-toed cats. Ooh. And you look at a six-toed cat, cat with thumbs, and you think, A, my God, they're going to take over the world. Um, and then B, 
that this is some kind of mutation in a gene, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your, your toe gene. Yeah. But it's not. It's, it's a one letter, one DNA letter change in a control switch. That just means a gene kind of hang, you know, it hangs around a bit too long during development. One single change and you've got cats with thumbs that could basically kill us as we sleep. And that's a big change. And, you know, I, yeah, being a geneticist, you end up kind of tangling with people um, over evolution and creationism and all this kind of stuff. And people say that there's just not enough time in the world to have evolved all these species. If evolution is, you know, you change a letter, you change a letter, things go very slowly, change a letter, things get a tiny bit bigger, a tiny bit smaller. But, you know, what we now know about all these switches, if you change one letter, you've got cats with thumbs. Yeah. Uh, another example is uh, sticklebacks. You know, you change a small piece of DNA and you go from sticklebacks that have these big bony pelvises with spikes on mm-hmm. to literally like no pelvis at all. It's not a change in a gene, it's a change in a switch. And when you start realizing that really small changes, small mutations in DNA can have massive changes in the organism, then you start to be able to see how you can make a lot of, a lot of diversity and, and you know, evolution, that's evolution's playground. Yeah. So I think when um, the Human Genome Project first started up, we just thought, once we find out what all the genes are, we're going to know everything. Like, this is going to be awesome. And then, like you say, 2% of it is genes. Yeah, that so was funny. <laughs> I completely agree. I think the coolest stuff is now, what is this? When I was an undergraduate, it was all referred to as junk DNA. Yeah. But the fact that it's clearly doing something, like it has to be doing something. You don't have all that excess for no reason. No, yes, I mean, some of it, I'm, I'm not a, it's all useful. I think some of it is probably junk um some of it though is like just the kind of stuff that you keep because it might come in useful you know these these (laughs) elements a lot of a lot of the junk in our genome is long dead viruses that just kind of got Mm -hmm. in there and stayed in there um and it does become useful uh if it's in the right place at the right time in the genome but yeah this whole idea that we've just got to move away from this very reductionist here's a gene here's what it does here's one fault in this gene it causes this disease here's a drug that targets this one fault in this mm-hmm. one gene that causes this one disease this is how we treat a disease people got very excited that we'd be able to do it and it just turned out to be not true at all uh, and this is why my next book is about cancer because i think we've gone through this whole process of 30 40 years of finding the genes that are faulty in cancer finding the faults in the genes and designing drugs that target those genes. And this is why I'm here in Florida, because I'm here to kind of really challenge that idea that it's it's much more complicated than that. Because we've tried targeting faults in cancer genes and it hasn't really got us a lot further down the road. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we haven't got there yet. And it's the same with genetics more broadly. We can find all these genes and all these variations and all these faults and we still can't really understand that black box between this DNA sequence, this this string of letters Mm -hmm. and how we come out. Yeah. So this kind of brings me on to the the recent story with the two astronauts. You will have seen this going around, I'm absolutely sure. So Scott Kelly, who was up in space for a year, came down and apparently his DNA was 7% different from his identical twin brother. (laughs) Audible groan. (laughs) So can you explain what the pitfalls behind that story were? So I always see a story like this with, in one way it's like, yay, genetics is in the headlines. That's really great. Yay, genetics. Um, And then I'm always like, oh God, they got it so wrong. So he didn't come back like with 7% of his DNA mutated yeah he was a banana <laughs> he was like 9 tenths of a banana or something. You know, he, didn't, he didn't come back a banana what happened was that there were definitely changes in what we talked about in the epigenetic markers in his genes so some of his genes uh, were more active and some of his genes were less active than his twin brother and also can I just say how freaking cool is it that they have a pair of twin astronauts this is just (laughs) amazing 
that you can have twin astronauts to do this kind of experiment because twins are nature's clones and they're so freaky and they're just brilliant um, but to be able to have this kind of uh, ability Control. to do this yeah. experiment but yeah he came back and as you might expect if you've gone through a different environmental experience you come back and find that some of your genes have been switched on and some of your genes have been switched off and this is going to be different from someone who hasn't gone through that experience but has also actually gone through a different experience on earth mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily that all these changes and differences were due to the guy going into space some of the differences will have been point. you know the stuff that happened to his brother on earth and went the other way so yes there will have been some probably some dna mutations because you're going into space a lot of radiation in space because you're like i don't know closer to that giant x-ray in the sky <laughs> I'm not a physicist, I'm, I may be wrong on that. But uh, there's more radiation space. So you can expect that there will be more mutations. Mm -hmm. But not like, he hasn't come back this kind of weird alien thing. Um, so yeah, that was a wonderful example of really epigenetics making the headlines and it just being got completely wrong, which is a shame. It is. But one of the cool things that they mentioned about that were extensions of telomeres. Can you explain what telomeres yeah. are? So telomeres are like the little plastic things that go on the end of your shoelaces. And they stop your shoelaces from coming unraveled. And uh, we have these little telomeres on the ends of our chromosomes. We have 23 pairs of chromosomes and they stop your DNA becoming unraveled, for want of a, a better way of describing it. And telomeres are really interesting because every time a cell divides, its telomeres get shorter. And this is thought to be some kind of limit on cells dividing uncontrollably because every time a cell divides, the telomeres get shorter. In the end, they get so short that the cell's like, oh, go on, fuck, and can't carry on. <laughs> um, that's the technical term. Yes. And um, I can't carry on. So cancer cells are immortal and stem cells are immortal. And they switch their telomerase, which is the enzyme that puts these caps on. They switch it back on so they can just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep multiplying as long as they like. And also there's a connection with ageing because people, it seems to be in people who live, people who live longer seem to have longer telomeres. Mm -hmm. So there's been a few books lately, including one written by Elizabeth Blackburn, who's like a big telomere scientist. And I was like, mm-hmm, girl. <laughs> um, but there's been a lot of interest in connection of telomeres to ageing. Can you extend your telomeres? Will this help you to cheat death? Uh, it's partly genetically determined. Um, who knows? But yeah, they kind of file under like super interesting, but don't really know quite what to do with them yet. Mm. I like that. I like mysteries. I suppose it's what keeps scientists going, really, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, if we've wrapped all this up, then we can just go home. Well, we'd all be out of a job. Well, yeah, well, know, some of us won't be. Actually, no, you would also be out of a job. I'll find something else to write about. <laughs> I'll write about unemployed scientists, you know. It'd be like the people who went to sort of, uh, you know, middle America. It's like, here, I'm here in Stanford where all the scientists are just sitting around <laughs> doing nothing. What do you do when you've solved science? I guess, I guess you would become a historian at that stage. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you touched upon this before, and that's that you are here writing a book on cancer and evolution. The first question really is what actually goes into the process of writing a popular science book? Uh, I mean, the sort of intellectual answer is you need to find a story. You need to find a story that's bigger than a feature. You need to find something that really engages you and you keep you going on this big intellectual journey as you kind of go on a quest to discover something really deep and truthful and make connections about a topic that no one's really covered before. Uh, the less truthful answer is like, I really want to write a book about cancer and evolution and I'm going to talk to loads of people and then just drink until I've written it. <laughs> Uh, if it's based at all on my last one. Well, maybe we should get you another drink. <laughs> but another drink would be nice. Uh, but yeah, I, I, my first book was about uh, genetics. And it was kind of, the book was like, how do our genes work? Mm -hmm. Because I would think about this and, and talk to people. And we're like, no one's really telling the public like how genes work. Mm -hmm. So I went around the world, talked to loads of scientists, um, asked them like, I'm writing a book about how your genes work. And pretty much all of them were like, well, when you find out, let me let know. Me know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I brought that book out. It was called Herding Hemingway's Cats. And I, that was my sort of personal quest narrative to mm -hmm. understand how our genes work. 
And this one is the book that I've really always wanted to write. So even when I was at Cancer Research UK, I wanted to write this book, but it was a bit kind of conflict of interesty because mm-hmm. it's very hard to work for a big cancer charity and then really get into the weeds of what is cancer? Why are we not treating it? Mm-hmm. Instead of kind of going, yay, making progress, everyone wear pink and run around this park. Like, there are cancers where nothing has changed for decades. Why is that? And then bigger questions about, like, why do we even get cancer? This book is really exploring where did cancer come from Mm -hmm. and where is it going? Why do we get it? What is it in the human body and the bodies of many, many other species Mm -hmm. that means that we get it? How does it change in the body? Mm -hmm. How does it respond to treatment? And why can we not treat cancer once it has started spreading because we're still really really crap at doing that I mean for all the progress that's been made if you have advanced cancer that has spread through your body you are talking months of survival maybe years if you're really lucky Mm -hmm. it's you know that is not a cure that's not even anything that looks like a cure yeah so I'm trying to find out okay how do we do better because at this point it's like well we may as well just give up because this is not what we're doing now is not working yeah so I'm trying to understand that from this bigger sweep of like life really like that cancer is cancer is cells gone wrong in our own body Mm -hmm. and it's almost like the dark side of life if you're going to have life if you're going to be a multicellular organism and make new cells that can go wrong if we're going to be a planet that has evolutionary processes on it making this wonderful diversity of life that also applies to the cells in our body Mm -hmm. and that's why cancer is so hard to treat so I've kind of been talking talking to people here at the Moffat and uh, talking to people over the US Uh, I'll be talking to people in the UK and and Europe and everywhere I can find them to kind of figure this one out and then go into my book hole drink a lot of scotch and write it all down (laughs) I I appreciate the sophistication of the process Um, it's a writerly process (laughs) So one of the things we were talking about in the car on the way down is that you are going to see a paleontologist about this, right? So how far back have cancers actually been detected? Because everybody always thinks, oh, it's a modern disease, it's because of our lifestyle and our diet and so on and so forth. So cancer, cancer is basically the, the, the consequence of being alive. If you are multicellular, then you have the capacity to develop cancer because multicellular organisms make new cells and that process can go wrong. So there's um, some people I went to see in Arizona, uh, at Arizona State University, and they've kind of done a survey across as many branches of life as they can find examples of where do you get cancers. And you can get cancers in tiny little polyps that live in the sea, the sort of little coral polyps called hydra. You can get cancer in things for elephants, whales, all these kind of different species. There's a whole chunk in the middle of their paper where they describe this that basically reads like the world's weirdest sushi menu. All these different (laughs) sea creatures that get cancers. And and so it has always been in life. There's one particular species of dinosaur, hadrosaurs, these duck-billed dinosaurs, that they found evidence of tumours in. Um, and also in terms of humans, you know, going back to Neanderthals, Neolithic people, mummies, there are enough examples of tumours that you think, well, this, you know, this wasn't like massively common, it wasn't that everyone had it, but certainly common enough to be a recognised disease. And then you have examples of in the written literature going back to ancient Egypt of like how you treat these things. Mm-hmm. So this is a, it's not a uniquely human disease. It's not a uniquely modern disease. It's, it's almost like the byproduct of life, which is kind of, it's a bummer, I guess. Yeah. But they've got to be drawbacks to the cooler sides of life as well. Yeah, you can live. Oh, bad luck. (laughs) Yeah. So what are some of the cooler things that you've discovered on this particular little tour? So uh, I think the coolest thing I have discovered so far is these little sponges that I met in the lab of uh, Carlo Malley, Arizona. And these, these sponges don't seem to get cancer they seem completely immune to it and they are growing these sponges in the lab and absolutely nuking them with radiation we're talking you know atom bombs worth of radiation and these little sponges are just like you know (laughs) flicking them the v's uh metaphorically (laughs) and 
the big question obviously is why and that's like that's what they're trying to find out so why is it that there are some species that get fewer cancers than they should for example well elephants get far fewer cancers than you would expect based on their size Mm because there's this kind of idea if you've got more cells you make more cells then you're more likely to get cancer Mm -hmm. and actually sort of the converse is true Um, so why does some animals who ought to get more cancers don't and then why do these little sponges when loads of other sea creatures get cancers why don't these guys like what does it take to kill a bloody sponge (laughs) that's what they're trying to find out and I think that's fascinating now, on, on top of your long list of accolades, you also have that you are a podcaster and broadcaster with Naked Scientists, and you actually have your own podcast. Yeah, I have a monthly podcast called Naked Genetics. Uh, the last episode should have come out yesterday, but it didn't because I'm in America. <laughs> uh, so, bad luck. So, I've been doing that for about six years. Yeah, and also I used to present the Naked Scientists podcast, and I've done things for like Radio 4 in the UK as well. So, I do, I love radio, and I think it's it's something that you can really explain science and talk to people and have really good conversations that just don't seem to exist in other media mm-hmm. is you know if you kind of it's kind of boring reading a whole interview mm-hmm. you need like prose and character and all this kind of stuff and it's a bit boring to read that and on tv they seem to just do tv science now as if you're like five with the attention span of a toddler like oh here's the thing this is what I just told you here's a picture here's a picture and I'm telling you what's in the picture and then I'm going to show you the picture again and like here's Brian Cox pointing at some stars Uh, I don't know if you guys have Brian Cox here I guess you have Neil deGrasse Tyson just pointing at some stars yeah so it's and I feel you don't get that kind of sitting down and conversation with people that you can really kind of delve into stuff and someone says something like oh tell me more about that Uh, and you can kind of really get into the get into the the nitty-gritty of it in a way that I don't think you can with many other mm. types of media so I think naked scientists in terms of science podcasts was probably one of the first of its kind if not the first yeah so what's the history behind it so I I think I'm the longest running naked scientist apart from Chris Smith who's the founder mm-hmm. so I was a I did my degree at Cambridge and I got involved with the naked scientists I think in the first year of my PhD and uh, oh no actually in my third year of my university degree I was I was writing for the university newspaper writing science Mm -hmm. and it was science week and they said hey go on this show this radio show local radio tiny station I think like you know 10 people and a dog listened to it (laughs) and uh, and there was this guy Chris Smith and I think we talked about it was all about the kind of GM frankenfoods fears that you know people eating GM tomatoes would somehow become genetically modified. I'm glad that we've completely got over we've, that now. We are so over that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, so kind of I'd, I'd met him and realised that I really liked radio because I really like talking and the sound of my own voice. Uh, <laughs> it's great if you're a podcaster, you just listen to your own voice all the time. It's brilliant. Um, and then I kind of got involved in doing the show, co-presenting the show. First time I ever went live on air, I accidentally left my phone in my bag in the studio. <laughs> and uh, my boyfriend at the time rang it to tell me that he could hear me on the radio. <laughs> why, why would you do that? Uh, we broke up. And, uh, <laughs> and it's kind of kept going from there. So this is, I think I've probably been involved with the Naked Scientist for maybe like 18 years. You know, it's longer than, longer than most marriages. <laughs> I think, um, but now I just do my own genetics podcast. I sort of kind of do my do my own thing with that, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, kind of do do what I can. So, on the subject of kind of science communication in general, do you see anything coming up in the future as a kind of cool way of starting to to share science with the public? I'm really convinced that we need to get a lot better at telling stories. So, I'm really like pushing. If you're going to call it like the personal brand is uh, as a storyteller of science mm-hmm. because we've had this idea I think for a long time that like fact, fact science is about facts but facts are really forgettable and stories are sticky and when you kind of think about pseudoscience or uh, kind of things that you look at and that are not good constructive narratives about the world the scientific rational narrative is kind of getting lost because we we're not prepared to stand up and tell a really engaging story because we're like, no, the facts should speak for themselves. And, you know, mm-hmm. but we've, you have to, and I don't just mean hokum kind of bullshit stories. I mean, just really understanding 
how do you construct a narrative with a beginning and a middle and an end mm-hmm. that's engaging to people that then they kind of remember you know if you were talking to someone in a bar they would you would remember sort of the, the arc of the story yes you know there was this woman and then you know and she they, they, they've got these sponges and like the sponges can resist more radiation than Hiroshima like you don't need to know all the details uh-huh. but you remember the story mm-hmm. uh, so trying to work out how do we find stories in science how do we encourage scientists to be brave enough to kind of come forward and tell stories and how do we make them stick I think is really interesting and then more broadly in terms of media uh, you know, there's always going to be a place, I'm a writer, so I'm going to always have a special place for writing. But if you think about cultures and places in the world where there's slightly higher levels of illiteracy, mm-hmm. so people don't necessarily have the time to sit down and read a 4,000 word New York Times or New Yorker article <laughs> over their coffee. Um, but a lot of places now have smartphones. Uh-huh. So, you know, people have the internet, they have access to phones. So I think things like video short video, audio, uh, are really going to become important. And those are the media that really work with stories. You know, no one's going to listen to a podcast that's just someone reading out facts. I mean, this, I mean yeah, this, it's the rule 34 of the internet. Like, you know, it's going to be someone's kink out there. But <laughs> generally, you know, you don't want to listen to uh, someone just reading through the encyclopedia. Although that, actually, I might, I might do that just for fun. Um, <laughs> You want to hear stories, and you want to hear someone telling stories. It's the oldest oral tradition of Mm -hmm. communication, you know, humans tell stories to each other. So I think that is, that's kind of where I'm going with it. And, you know, personally, I'm trying to do it in the work that I do. Uh, I'm trying to help other people do it, train scientists and communicators. I've just set up my own business called First Create the Media, which is all about, you know, uh, it's based on the, it's the sort of the misquote about uh, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch you must first create the universe Mm -hmm. it's like you know if we want to tell stories about things about where things came from we need to create a little sort of universe around it so um, that's kind of what I'm trying to do now fun it's it's (laughs) a lot of fun it's a lot of hard work working for yourself is hard and freelance terror you know at the end of the month you don't get that nice kind of salary but um, it's working for me so far yes long may it continue thank you So normally we launch into some questions and since we've got David and Jill here, I'm going to ask them if they have anything. So David uh, uses mathematics an awful lot in his work and he doesn't think that there are public misconceptions about how math is used. Um, But genetics is obviously uh, used as a term and misused in popular culture, in anything where someone is trying to make a point. Um, So what are your biggest pet peeves with regards to how people think of genetics. Ooh, that is a good one. Although I would argue like, people don't have misconceptions about the uh, nuts and bolts of mathematics, but they definitely have misconceptions about mathematicians. I would say, <laughs> having, having met a lot more mathematicians lately. Um, I think what's interesting, I just made a couple of podcasts about forensics, uh, forensic genetics. And so that was really interesting, talking to people in the field, because you get that kind of CSI effect where people are like, if we've got the DNA, we're going to get the guy, you know, you can, this is definitely, we'll nail them if you've just got the DNA. And then talking to people who use forensic science, they say, yeah, juries come to the court and even judges with this idea that this is what, this is what the genes will tell us, this is what the DNA will tell us. And, um, and it's simply not true. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that like DNA is this complete tell-all, will identify you, that even now that you could do a DNA photo fit, that you could work out what someone's, uh, someone looks like entirely from their DNA, mm-hmm. is certainly not true. And also there are some cases where DNA is completely irrelevant. You know, if it's a, say, a sexual assault case, where it's a, this was consensual, no, it wasn't consensual, like, well, yeah, there's going to be DNA there, but it's meaningless, yeah. um, effectively. So, and the other thing that, uh, this is very tangential, uh, but what really kind of, freak me out that people don't realize is we walk through the world shedding dna everywhere mm-hmm. so and also that you could say you know we've been hanging out close together we've touched the same surfaces you could pick up some of my dna and then later when you go off on your crime spree uh you <laughs> As I want to do <laughs> yeah you look like the type uh <laughs> that you would leave traces of my dna at the crime scene and because techniques are so sensitive now mm-hmm. that you can pick up almost anything anywhere 
then that becomes very interesting from a criminal justice point of view. And then also, kind of bringing it back to things like cancer and disease, you can pick up traces of all sorts of things all over the place. So there was a, a case a few years ago where people thought that they were picking up this particular virus in a lot of cancers, a virus called XMRV. And they were like, yes, and this is causing loads and loads of cases of cancer. And then actually you start to look more closely and viral sequences are all over the place mm -hmm. and they're tiny and viruses get everywhere and these kind of experiments are really susceptible to contamination so this idea that like if you can find the dna it's definitely there it's definitely real it definitely tells you something i think is a big misconception and then just all the kind of bollocks that you get about oh well your grandmother was like this and it's in your genes you know your great great grandfather on your mother's side was a baptist preacher and that's why you're good on the radio <laughs> uh, yeah i couldn't do without that <laughs> well this also brings up this kind of um i mean 23 and me is a really big thing now and it brings up the subject of you know race and who we are and what any of this means. Yeah. I mean, can you comment on that? I find this super interesting. Uh, so I'm um, my current sort of my current talk that I'm doing, my current sort of public talk, is called "Everything You Know About Genetics Is Wrong," and some of this touches on that. Yes, you know, you can look at people's genes and you can find variations in people's genes and think that it will tell you things, but actually. There's an awful lot we don't know about the black box between your genotype, between the letters of your DNA and your phenotype, how you actually come out. And a couple of years ago, there was this incredible story that came out. Uh, I don't know if you remember the headlines, like 13 genetic superheroes walk among us. So it's this concept that people, they managed to identify people who had genetic faults that should have made them sick, uh -huh. including like, people who should have had cystic fibrosis you know the poster mm -hmm. child for genetic disease but were well and that's really 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 interesting because we've kind of had this thing in genetics for over 100 years where you find families affected by diseases you map their dna you find the gene fault that's common to all of them with the disease and you go that's it that's our gene and this is our gene fault and then you're like off into the let's design drugs and target it uh and actually now, when you can start having the technology to completely look in an unbiased way at thousands of genomes, hundreds of thousands of people, you start finding all sorts of stuff. You know, and all of us are walking around with what should be pathological genetic variations. Mm -hmm. We're all walking around with genes that should make us, you know, sick, dodgy, ill, whatever. And broadly, we all kind of come out okay because life finds a way, right? Um, so... I find it interesting that people can now basically spit in a tube and get a readout of all sorts of things that are in their code, their DNA, without really knowing what's coming out the other side. I mean, there's mm -hmm. obvious stuff like it will tell you if you've got brown eyes or, or curly will, hair. Yeah, you know, the really <laughs> like I can tell that by looking in a mirror. Uh, and also, you know, you can tell a lot of stuff about your health by if you've got access to a good family history, you know, which may not be true for all people and you know, people who uh, are adopted and things like that or, or don't know their birth parents. That can be really interesting and informative, but it's not a kind of one to one mm -hmm. thing. It's about risk and probability. And we really don't know enough about that equation. And then the other really big thing is that your genes are not your own. So I think people embark on genetic testing and all this kind of stuff without really considering that that's telling them information about the genes of people that they're related to mm -hmm. and there's this, this recent case about um, a murderer I th who I think was caught because some of his relatives had given their DNA their an for ancestry testing and there's kind of you know there's a lot of I'm not I'm not, I'm, I'm not making out like we're all kind of criminal masterminds <laughs> but uh, if you want to get away with a, a crime just don't let any of your family get DNA tested for a start but that kind of thing is um, your genes are not your own and mm -hmm. you will find out things about yourself but also about your blood relatives and in some cases that like maybe people who you thought were your blood relatives might not be not so, so much um, yeah. not so much so misattributed paternity is another side effect of spitting in a tube and putting it in the post so you know beware quite well mine was incredibly dull so I have to admit to having done 23andMe and it says I am 97% South Asian. 
you're shitting Who me. Who would have guessed it? I know, right? <laughs> so, yeah, that was uh, a lot of money down the drain. Well, you sound like tube, 97% South England for me, <laughs> so... Uh... <laughs> I know. Looks can be deceiving. So, essentially, I think the, the question is that privacy is a, a big deal now anyway. Um, whether it's, you know, just with regard to our bank information, but obviously something like genetics is a lot more potentially important, especially in the US where you have private insurance companies and they do make decisions as to whether you're going to get money for your health care. Should we be worried about these things? Yes. In short, I think we should be really worried. Uh, partly we should be worried because... You know, <laughs> Legal policy elephants are very slow to catch up with changing frameworks and landscapes. So, you know, the, the genetic era has just raced ahead. There are companies where you can spit in a tube and they will tell you, like, what diet you should have. Those are bollocks, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are... Uh, people can do all these tests, you can do all this analysis, and the legal framework has just not kept up with it. So there's this general prohibition on using genetic information for insurance purposes kind of not allowed to do that but what should we do as a society what does this information mean who owns it how private should it be there's some well-known examples in the literature where you can triangulate people from their data so you know privacy is is an issue there are some people i've met someone who has donated their genome to the public uh-huh. you know they they got their whole genome sequenced on the basis that it would then become public mm-hmm. you have to do a test on genetics first that's quite interesting <laughs> before they'll let you do it so it is kind of really super informed consent and he is a professor of genetics i think but um you know there are people who are just going to go well i don't care i'll put it out there there's sort of almost like the Facebook oversharers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people will put all kinds of information about themselves on Facebook. I've seen incredibly personal information about my friends, about their health, about all sorts of things. So I think some people will do that. Coming back to it again is like your genome is not your own genome. And there was quite a well-publicised case where there were two twins. And I think they had a risk of Huntington's disease and one twin decided to get her genome sequenced Mm -hmm. and it was the whole thing about are you allowed to tell your twin or not because you will obviously share the mutation i think in the end a member of the family who knew just blabbed it to the other twin and it's just this ridiculous case um but that kind of stuff becomes important and i don't i don't know the answers to this i kind of waver between i really want more and more and more people to sequence their genomes to put their data into projects into research projects mm-hmm. to open that black box between genotype and phenotype because the only way we're going to do that is with data and with people getting engaged sharing their medical records you know what this is my genome this is what I do in my life this is what's happened to me we need that data but not if people are going to not if companies if research organizations if governments are going to behave irresponsibly with it mm-hmm. because I think the higher duty should be to the understanding of of science and understanding of humanity and I will be absolutely furious if governments, insurance companies, um, corporate entities misuse that but as a society we need to put that framework in place it's not something that will just happen you know Mm -hmm. it's inevitable it's not inevitable humans make policy but we need to uh, we're just not making good genetics policy we're not making any genetics policy mm-hmm. at the moment and that's a, that's a problem and also because people in you know people in the government don't understand anything about genetics and that's why I do what I do yes yeah I mean obviously that I mean we keep banging on this drum that effective policy is only made if you have kind of good scientific information and if you're going to have a government that doesn't even have like scientific advisors that becomes increasingly difficult yeah um, and so we, it's not just the matter of like having DNA sequence now, it's forming kind of uh, policy and ethical decisions on the basis of... So for things like CRISPR, for example, now this is, this is a whole other new technology. Explain oh, yeah. what CRISPR is to people. So cr- CRISPR is what's known as DNA editing. So uh, for a long time, well, you know, so for a long time we've been able to do selective breeding, which is kind of genetic modification the old school way, where uh, you get two organisms that have desirable traits and then you make them have sex. 
So that's kind of that's the old school way of doing genetics. And then you select the ones that have the traits that you like, and then you make them have sex, and you just carry on. And through selective breeding, we've done huge amounts of change to the species that live around us, the species we eat, the species that are our pets. Um, so, you know, this kind of genetic selection and modification goes on. Then we got into the era of, I suppose, GM genetic modification, where you could use, I guess, fairly what we'd now consider to be fairly crude techniques to manipulate genes, change bits in the genome. And this is what the sort of stuff I was doing during my PhD, and it was a complete ball ache. It took ages, you're making knockout mice, all of this kind of thing, and it's really, really difficult. And now, now I've left the lab, uh, there is this wonderful technology called CRISPR, which means that really simply, you can kind of snip out bits of DNA, change it, repair it, put new bits in, really really easily and I'm really jealous that I'm, <laughs> I'm not in the lab at this time because it seems incredible um, so you have this incredible technology and in theory in theory it is much more precise than the kind of classic GM techniques and people get kind of very worked up around this around agriculture so mm -hmm. uh, you know the idea that, that GM crops are bad um, I think that was a massive failure of science communication when people first started uh, developing GM crops. And the idea is that, you know, you could just say really precisely tweak so one gene in a wheat crop to make it into exactly the same gene that would be naturally found in a more drought resistant grass. Yeah, brilliant, it's a great idea. We need drought resistant wheat because mm -hmm. the world is changing. Um, and then you get into the exciting idea of, well, could you do this in animals in people there are people using CRISPR technology to make uh, things like chickens that cannot get viruses mm -hmm. so you would actually improve the health of agricultural animals through this technology so that's that's kind of an, an interesting debate and I I think that generally the scientific community is doing a much better job of communicating what this technology is how it works what the end product is like mm -hmm. that it's not like scary 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 bad 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 like i think a lot of the early gm stuff the frankenfoods kind mm -hmm. of era of, of gm worries were so now then we get into the era of well could we use this technology to modify humans so that is interesting um i think the, the argument is well if you're going to change human genes you can't change all the cells in the body of an adult that's impossible at the moment there's a moratorium global moratorium on changing genes in an embryo so we're not going to make so we're not going to make you know gm humans anytime mm -hmm. soon uh, or cloned humans anytime soon although i suspect that china probably will be first out of the blocks when that one comes um but there is really interesting stuff about for example in blood disorders mm -hmm. so these are horrible horrible blood disorders you can take blood stem cells genetically engineer them with crispr put them back in and people can be cured of these diseases um, same thing you could take liver cells mm -hmm. use CRISPR in them and you could turn them into say little protein factories if people aren't making the correct enzymes mm -hmm. people with enzyme metabolic disorders uh, people like diabetics or things like that you know these could be really transformative technologies so I think that we need to really make sure we're explaining what these are how they work what they can do for people before the kind of the fear sets in mm -hmm. um, well it's kind of this is exciting and this is transformative rather than this is really scary and we're all going to be manipulated and turned into monsters do you suppose this is kind of coincided with scientists becoming better communicators because it feels like we're, we're in a kind of boom for scientists actually wanting to share their research yeah I'm People sort of point back to the heydays of the 60s where you get people like, um, you know, the, you get people who are amazing science communicators like Richard Dawkins and all these people are basically old white guys who wrote books that are a bit tedious. Uh, <laughs> I'm probably going to get shot for... Controversial. Going to get kind of shot for saying that. <laughs> but, you know, the, there were a few people who were writing books and there was this kind of idea that scientists themselves should stay in the ivory tower and just just stay in their lane and do science 
it has changed and even now there are some places where you know to get a grant you have to show that you're doing public engagement there's definitely a difference between engagement and communication Mm -hmm. I think what I do is communication I'm pretty clear on that I'm a communicator I'm not necessarily an engager Mm -hmm. engagement is about dialogue is about finding out you know not only like we've done a thing ta-da it's about we were thinking of doing this thing do you think that's a good idea Mm -hmm. what do you want to do how do you want to you know come and engage give us your your thoughts you use people come and be involved in us science Um, so I think that is something that is good and could make better science actually particularly things like involving patients in deciding where programs of research go Mm -hmm. through through charitable or or government funders I think that's really really important because you pick out things that are important to patients that scientists might not even be aware of at all and yeah generally I think we are we are in a kind of a golden age of science communication you can have podcasts you can make your own videos you can do your own YouTube uh, you can publish your own blog where we're not in a golden age is in people paying for this stuff oh yeah Uh, yeah so you know there's all these people who are communicating science and it's it's really hard to make a living out of it um you know lots of outlets are laying off their science reporters Mm -hmm. um you know trying to make i couldn't make a living purely as a, a freelance journalist yeah so you know that is a problem if you want really good quality science communication I think you should pay for it you know you should support podcasts like this you should subscribe to science outlets that you really like Mm -hmm. you know go to talks support people that you like buy books buy my books Uh, (laughs) because all of this helps good people who are putting out quality products to to keep doing it yep and on that note we're going to say you can always go to patreon.com forward slash two scientists and offer a little bit of something for every podcast that we record because we essentially do this for free after doing our day jobs. So, um, yes, just uh, going to put that out there. And on that note, we'd like to say thank you so much, Kat. And uh, it's been an absolute blast having you here today. And we appreciate you stopping on this crazy whirlwind tour of the US to speak to us. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks to the beers and the amazing tacos as well. Ooh, yes, tacos. Should we, should we well, you're beautiful And my love for you is irrational And it's constant, it's recurring And it's infinite and you can use it to calculate The circumference of the circle of any known So, diameter. um, I, mean, I wasn't the world's best lab scientist I will be absolutely honest In that I am really clumsy, I'm really forgetful I'm the sort of person who'd set up, you know, 100 PCRs and then you know, stay really late in the lab or usually go to the pub and then come back and then discover I'd left the enzyme out or something like that. Yeah, my lab career was not glorious. And I was also, this, this was, you know, a while ago, so we were a bit more slack on the whole health and safety kind of thing. So I was doing, I think, we used to do a lot of southern blots. We were genotyping mice, trying to make knockouts really unsuccessfully. So you're doing lots and lots and lots of DNA preps, doing southern blots, which uses 32P, radioactive phosphorus. And I was not the most conscientious person about wearing a lab coat ever. And, um, and I was just like doing, you know, doing my stuff with the radioactive 32P, managed somehow to just spill stuff all down my clothes because I'm not wearing a lab coat. And this stuff isn't massively dangerous, I think. It's, it's quite diluted. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I kind of spill it down my clothes and it's like, oh, shit. Uh, I'm not really, like running the Geiger counter over my boobs, like, <laughs> okay, this is, this is bad. And uh, and so my friend in the lab, she's like, you know, she's, she's German, she's like, we have to get you out of your clothes. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not going to do it here. And luckily my boss, um, uh, Professor Azim Sarani, FRS, uh, was not in his office at the time. So And he had a blind on the window. So I was like, quick, get in Azim's office. We get in, we pull the blinds down. I just take all my clothes off. And, um, and I was like, oh, no. And uh, yeah, basically, so I had to put all my clothes in a uh, decon bag. And, uh, and then go home wearing a lab coat. So uh, that taught me a really valuable lesson, which is uh, always wear a lab coat. And especially if you're naked in your boss's office, always wear a lab coat. 
yeah, that's that's my story. Maybe I'm just thinking of pie. Ah, pie. Statistically, I love you. If you were a logarithm, I'd be your exponential. When you grasp my so we hope you enjoyed this episode. As you can tell, Kat is a practice communicator and good at her job. In fact, go and check out her most recent work on the Genetics Unzipped podcast right now. We're hugely appreciative that she agreed to record with us for free. Unfortunately, this is how much of the science communication work is. David and I produce, record and edit two scientists without being paid, which is cool, but we'd love to have your support so that we can look after our guests. You can go to patreon.com forward slash two scientists and offer a mere dollar per episode which will allow us to cover the cost of our speakers our website and various bits of equipment we thank you for your consideration and rhetorically do i want you and theoretically you are already mine (laughs) it's like that scene out of um american beauty right Chasing around a little bit of plastic. A piece of trash romantically floating in the breeze. (laughs) Okay.